welcome to the latest episode in our Herbert Smith Three Hills Public MA podcast series. My name's Antonia Kirkby and I'm joined today by Mark Bardell. And today we're going to be discussing the changes that were recently announced to the Takeover Code uh, that will come into force on the 5th of July this year, 2021. The detailed changes are set out in the panel's response statement 2020-1 and it follows the consultation paper they published last October and which we talked about in a podcast at the time. So moving on to the changes that have actually been announced today, this week rather, uh, the changes largely relate to sort of three different themes. The first is the conditions to an offer and particularly around official authorisations and regulatory clearances. The second are around the offer timetable and what the panel are looking to do is both simplify the timetable for a contractual offer and also introduce a more flexible timetable on a contractual offer to accommodate better the sort of long running uh, regulatory timetables that bidders face around the world. And so remove some of the disadvantages of the more rigid offer timetable that's set out in the code when compared to schemes. So, Mark, should we take each of those in turn and starting off with the conditions to an offer, what are the panel looking to do uh, in relation to these? So, thanks, Antonia. I think you're absolutely right to, to try and break the response statement down into those, those three categories. And, and I guess as an introductory comment from me, the response statement and the volume of changes looks quite large and daunting. So the response statement at 128 pages, and there is an awful lot of detail contained within it. But but stepping back uh, to, to answer your question, what's it really about? Well, it's really about regulatory clearances. And there was a historical special status for EU merger clearance and UK competition and markets authority clearance, um, which meant that if you move to a phase two, then your bid must lapse. And the any condition relating to EU merger clearance or UK Competition Markets Authority had a special status that it was outside uh, the panel's jurisdiction for testing materiality. Whereas merger clearances in any other regime around the world were subject to the panel's test of materiality. So the heart of the change is a principled and and very simple change i would suggest uh, which is to remove that special status so merger clearance antitrust competition however you want to refer to it is now treated the same way for all jurisdictions um, all across the world why are they doing it now well the question was prompted by brexit really um, because the EU merger clearance and what was going to be the impact. But the, the issue is one of principle. Why is it that the UK Antitrust Authority, the CMA, should have a special status? Why is it that the EU should have a special status? And the panel's principled answer is it shouldn't, that, that all antitrust authorities should be treated in the same way. And for what it's worth, I, I think that point of principle is, is logical and correct. Uh, and it's right for the panel to test materiality in that way. So in, in that way, that's the heart of the change. And that's that first category that you mentioned. Thanks, Mark. Um, so if we move on now to the contractual offer timetable, um, what, what are they doing to simplify it? 
Sure. So I think the the way to understand this is, I would suggest, that most bids in the UK are implemented by way of a scheme of arrangement rather than by a contractual tender offer. And that's uh, now a well-established practice in the UK market. And what the panel, I think, are really trying to do here is to look at that and try and adjust the rigid timetable that the code imposes on a contractual tender offer to make it a little bit more appealing um, and a little bit closer to how a scheme operates in practice uh, so that offers are more usable in this modern environment where there are just more global regulatory clearances required on bids. Um, so that, I would say, is the, is the best way to think about it. And so what does that mean? Well, it means quite a lot of things, but at its heart, uh, they are saying that there is one period of time for a contractual offer, and that will be 60 days from the posting of the offer document. And it used to be the case that under the existing rules that everybody's familiar with, you'd think about day 60, being the last day to satisfy the acceptance condition to your tender offer and day 81. So then the code allowed a further 21 days to satisfy any other conditions, i.e. all the other regulatory conditions. And so they've done away with that idea. So now the idea is that uh, the last condition to be satisfied would be the acceptance condition. So you don't need any day 81, day 60 is your last day. But obviously 60 days isn't long enough to get all the global regulatory clearances you need. And so they need the ability uh, to extend that 60 day period. Uh, and the way that they do that um, is to introduce th this extension idea. Um, and it goes along with all of that, that if you've just got a 60 day tender offer period to tender in your acceptances to the offer, then you don't need closing dates anymore. So the old idea was that you would uh, post your offer document, the offer document uh, stipulated an offer period complying with the minimum period of 21 days, and then there would be extensions every customarily sort of 14 days or so to take you up to the longest period allowed that was day 60. So under these new changes, all of that is done away with. And instead, there is just one period of time. It's 60 days. There's no closing dates along the way. Uh, you just run the 60 day period. The panel have retained the ability for bidders to speed things up and they can speed things up uh, by um, having an acceptance condition invocation notice or what the response statement refers to as an ACIN. Um, and that is the mechanism by which the bidder can give 14 days notice um, that it intends to invoke the acceptance condition and walk away. So you can still have quicker timetables, but the default is the, is the 60 day period. And my perspective on that would be to say, 
in reality, most shareholders always expect a contractual tender offer to last 60 days and didn't really organize themselves around the closing dates because there was a general skepticism that any bidder would walk away on a closing date. And if you look at the 50 odd year history of the code, yes, there are a handful of examples of bidders trying to invoke on a closing date and uh, advisors and shareholders running around to get acceptances in in time to stop that from happening but those are the minority of cases so uh, again even though there's a lot of detail here I, I think it just um, regularizes what was already happening in practice which is people expecting a contractual tender offer in the UK to be open for 60 days the, the other thing that it's worth highlighting in that respect is um, withdrawal rights. So under the old code, um, withdrawal rights are exercisable 21 days after the first closing date, so i.e. day 42 in the, in the timetable. Under the new regime, withdrawal rights are exercisable at any time during the offer period. And at first glance, if you're used to the existing regime, that seems like quite a big change. But actually, if you compare it globally, if you look at the US system, for example, withdrawal rights are, are, are commonly exercisable throughout the tender offer period. And I'd also say if you look at it logically, if you think about what tendering and acceptance means, it means in, in sort of practical terms that you move your shareholding into an escrow in Crest and the shareholding is effectively frozen until the timetable for the offer completes. So it's quite a serious thing if you're the owner of the shares to put your shareholding on ice, put it in escrow for that period of time. If you compare a scheme of arrangement, shareholders get a vote but they can trade their shares, buy and sell throughout the offer period. Um, and, and why shouldn't um, shareholders have that same ability during, during a contractual offer, I would say. And the way that you do that is to have withdrawal rights so that you can tender your acceptance, but then withdraw and get them out if you need it. Um, whether people use them, um, I, I doubt in practice they will get used very much, but as a matter of principle, why shouldn't it exist i would say yeah thank you mark i think i think i agree with you that the on first blush it looks like there are a lot of detailed changes but actually i think we'll end up with a far more logical timetable i think things like closing dates currently actually cause quite a bit of confusion for the uninitiated in this area so having a straightforward 60 day offer period during which uh, shareholders can accept and them having the ability to withdraw their acceptances um if they want to in the course of the, the uh, offer will make life more straightforward, I think. So if we move on now to the final category of the changes, we sort of cut them up into at the outset. Um, the flexible timetable for contractual offers, and I think this ties back quite well with the regulatory clearances issues we were discussing earlier. What are they proposing to do around that? Yeah, so this, this point, um, again, a key, key change uh, is the idea that now with a fixed 60-day uh, timetable for a contractual offer, it's not long enough for most regulatory clearances. So how do you extend that? The panel's answer 
is that there is an ability to to extend um, and that the the right point to extend is day 39 of the uh, timetable and and why is that well day 39 is the last day for new information to be published by the target company um, and if you then think about other dates that are significant in a contractual offer timetable you've got day 46 which is the final date that the bidder can improve the offer terms the price and other terms and you've also got day 53 which is i think best understood as a kind of cousin of the put up and shut up deadline so day 53 is the idea that if you have an identified bidder um, kicking around that the target shareholders ought to have a period of time during which they know with certainty whether that um, other bidder, that potential competing bidder, is going to come forward or not. So day 53 is the date on which um, the, the identified bidder will be forced to either make a, an announcement of a firm intention to make an offer or would be forced to make an announcement of no intention to bid. So that's why I say that's a, a kind of cousin of Puzu. So all those are the dates that follow from day 39 that take you up to day 60, the end of the contractual offer period. So the idea here, and, and I think it's a good one and the right one, is that if you need more than 60 days, you effectively pause the timetable at day 39. So if you get your regulatory clearances in, you wait until the last regulatory clearance comes in and then you restart the 60 day timetable on day 39 and the rest of the timetable runs. So what the panel say is the way, the right time to test that is the 37th day after publishing the offer document, so day 37. But that's not a fixed moment in time, that's just the, the point at which they're suggesting you should test it it is possible to extend the timetable before or after day 37, uh, but that's the, the moment that they're thinking of with the consequence that if there is an extension, you wait for the regulatory clearance and then you restart the timetable at, at day 39. Um, so that's that's really the, the flexibility that's introduced. And I think it's, a, it's quite similar to um, different regulators dealing with timetables the idea that people will be familiar with with stopping the clock in the context of a of an eu merger clearance for example so here you've got a, a version of stopping the clock but keyed in around day 39 in the contractual offer timetable and are there any thresholds that have to be met if you want to to pause the clock at day 39 or or is it how does that how will that work in practice yeah so that that's a great question and is one that the the panel to be fair to them have given a lot of careful thought to um so what they say is that regulatory clearances would need to be conditions to the offer and as everybody knows the panel has a fierce policy approach to the policing of conditions to an offer um, because the takeover panel is a policy matter 
prizes certainty for the UK market and therefore doesn't want a bidder to be able to easily walk away from a bid. So as a consequence, just as a reminder for everybody, um, the panel will only allow conditions to a bid if they are not subjective and not within the control of the bidder and if they are sufficiently material. And then the panel also applies the materiality test at the point of seeking to invoke a condition and actually walk away from a bid. So traditionally, there's, there's two times that you look at materiality. One is when you're drafting your conditions and before your 2.7 is announced, you know, is it material enough to even be permitted as a condition? And then you've got to look at materiality again if you ever want to invoke a condition. Um, and what the panel is saying when it comes to timetable extensions, it needs a new category, a new threshold of materiality. So they've introduced the concept of a material official authorization or regulatory clearance. And if a condition meets that threshold, that is enough to get a timetable extension. But the panel points out that that does not mean that it's sufficiently material to allow the bidder to invoke that condition. So the panel, like all regulators, wants to reserve to itself its discretion to apply its jurisdiction. And so what it's saying is just because we let you get an extension to your timetable doesn't mean it's going to be material enough for you to walk away from the transaction. So as a result, in rule sense, you've got two materiality thresholds nowadays, um, or, or I say nowadays, with effect from the 5th of July. Um, and the sufficiently material to get a timetable extension is material official authorization or regulatory clearance. And you've got to look to rule 34.1a for that. And the, the higher threshold for invoking a condition is material significance. And that's rule 13.5a where, where it's always been. Uh, so that, that is how the, the panel introduced this concept of the right threshold to be able to get an extension to the timetable. And it's, it's just worth uh, noting while we're talking about invoking conditions that the panel executive are also going to be updating their practice statement number five, which talks has all the sort of information about the, the tests and factors it will look at when deciding whether a bidder can invoke that uh, condition on an offer. And that will be published on the 5th of July as well. So definitely worth looking at the detail in there if, if you're considering whether you're going to be able to invoke a condition. Um, yeah, look, you're absolutely right. And, and, and Tanya, uh, and apologies for me jumping in no. there, but a, a point for uh, the, the sort of takeover nerds, if you like, within that respect is the panel uh, interestingly points out in the response statement that clearances from the UK pension regulator won't be um, sufficient to get a timetable extension. Uh, so they make the technical point that a clearance from uh, the pension regulator is not actually an official authorization or regulatory approval. It is just a comfort process. And as a matter of you know legal analysis, that's absolutely right. But it's interesting that clearances, and we're expecting there to be more clearances applied for following the new Pension Schemes Act 2021, um, that won't be enough to get a timetable extension. But that does leave open the possibility of 
um, different kinds of conditions relating to pension schemes. Uh, but that would be an interesting one to watch how that develops. Yeah, and actually also while we're talking about that interesting commentary in the response statement around the National Security and Investment Bill um, and the panel pretty much explicitly confirming, although not quite, that, that it will be a material authorisation or regulatory clearance. So that will make life easier for bidders, particularly as we get used to the new regime under the um, National Security and Investment Act when it comes in later this year, as we expect. It yeah, it's a really important point. Um, so moving on now to the final limb of the changes, I think, uh, they are going to introduce a long stop date for contractual offers. What difference will that make and, and how will that work? So I think in, in terms of practice, this will be the biggest change in practice, um, in, in my opinion. This is a really important change. Yes, it's in the detail. But it's important because it goes to duration of financing and certain funds for a, for a bid. So just to explain the idea here, uh, I, I think it goes back to this policy of evening up contractual tender offers when compared with schemes of arrangement. So on a scheme of arrangement, um, everyone will know that the timetable is really set by the court because it's a court process. You know, as a matter of technicality, even the shareholder meeting is convened by order of the court, um, not really by the company uh, as with normal company meetings. So scheme of arrangement, all controlled by the High Court um, uh, in London. And therefore, uh, going back to a core principle of the code, certain funds, how long is your bid financing? How long does it need to be there for? Because you've got a discretionary timetable that, that's in the hands of the court. So it's been a long established practice that you have a condition to your offer referred to as the long stop date. Um, and that's the duration of your financing. Uh, and that is set out clearly in the uh, 2.7 announcement and the market knows to look for when the long stop date is. And if you approach that date, then the bidder on a scheme of arrangement can walk away from the transaction. Um, and that is a, a hard condition which is not subject to the panel's views of materiality and, and all of that. I believe is long established practice. And the practical safety net there is that the target board ought to negotiate what that long stop date is um, as part of its recommendation, as part of the scheme. So there ought to be a commercial negotiation around that. Shareholders get the benefit of the certain financing period that runs for that duration. It can't go on forever, of course, because no bidder could possibly afford that. So when does it stop? Well, you negotiate when it stops. On a contractual offer, traditionally, there's been no long stop date because there's no need for one. You've got a rigid contractual offer timetable. So how long does the financing need to be in place? Well, it needs to be in place for uh, 60 days plus 21 days. So 81 days plus 14 days to then pay the pay the amount. And, and so you just calculated it on that basis. As a consequence of having this new flexibility in the timetable, you've now got the, the possibility that contractual offer periods run for a lot longer. And therefore, the panel 
has taken the point that it's appropriate to introduce the concept of a long stop condition for contractual tender offers, uh, much like a scheme arrangement. However, there's an important difference um, as set out in the response statement, which is the long stop date on a contractual offer is still subject to the panel's view on materiality. So that the panel is saying a, a yes and a no when it comes to long stop dates and contractual offers. So yes, they're allowing the concept, but no, it's not quite as good as a long stop date in a scheme of arrangement. And they are retaining their jurisdiction and their discretion as to whether or not to allow a bidder to invoke the long stop date on a contractual offer. Why are they saying this? Um, I would argue it's because they're a regulator and they want to maintain their discretion to apply their rules. And like all regulators, they want as much discretion as, as they can get. Um, and you can hear in my answer there, uh, those remembering their undergraduate legal days will remember Dworkin's analysis of regulators and discretion and all the rest of it. But before getting sidetracked in too much jurisprudence, <laughs> uh, the the, the, the real answer here is they don't want, as a policy matter, a bidder to filibuster and tactically use up the time available so that you then hit a long stop date so that the bidder can walk away. And I think you saw that kind of policy approach in the recent Moss Bros decision where all the appeals came quite close to the long stop date on that scheme. And I think it was all a bit of a squeaky moment for the parties involved. And I, I think the panel don't want to expose themselves to a bidder gaming the system uh, on a long stop date for a contractual offer. So I think it's all understandable and, and it's all quite clearly set out in their response statement. Uh, so if, if people want to read that, that's set out in section four of, of that response statement. It's quite a helpful description of when the panel will exercise this discretion when it won't. If you step away from it all, the key point to understand is you now have an extra condition on contractual tender offers. That is a long stop date. And the bidder should have an expectation of being able to invoke that un unless there is a, a problem with the regulatory clearances where the panel want to take jurisdiction and, and force the bid to go through um, in, in favour of the principle of certainty of markets. So that ought not to come as a surprise to bidders in the UK market. Thanks, Mark. Um, should we wrap up by thinking about what impact these changes might have in practice? I guess my first question is, do you think that we will see uh, more contractual takeover offer used rather than schemes going forward? So uh, my answer to that is sort of picking up on where we started this whole conversation. There's a lot of changes. There's a lot of detail, 128 pages worth. But at the end of it, and, and I say this is a good thing, I don't think there will be very much change in practice. Um, I still think schemes of, schemes of arrangement will remain the most popular way to implement takeovers in the UK and will remain the most popular method, particularly for those with lots of or more difficult regulatory approvals and clearances. 
Why is that? Well, the timetable on scheme of arrangement is just more flexible. Uh, also, the scheme of arrangement gives you that binary outcome of 100% of the company or, or nothing. Uh, so bidders are not left in a difficult closing position. And, and that binary feature helps with the financing. So all told, I think schemes of arrangement uh, will remain the most popular. Um, and, and therefore, I don't see these changes altering practice um, all that much. A, a bigger threat to schemes of arrangement is, in my opinion, the current trend for hedge funds and activists to take procedural points and challenge at the last minute at the scheme hearing. So you've seen that recently and in Marsat, uh, it's happening again um, in William Hill. Um, and it will continue to happen, I'm sure, uh, that, that more than any of these changes might mean you see more contractual tender offers, but still overall, I see schemes of arrangement remaining by far and away the most popular route through. Yeah, I agree with you, Mark. And in fact, Greg Mully and I discussed uh, some of the shareholder interventions we've seen at the, the scheme court meetings in our last podcast, uh, which is available on our podcast page. Um, and then I think the other sort of area for me that's of interest in it and the impact that we'll, it will have going forward is the regulatory analysis that a bidder will have to undertake before launching a 2.7. How, how much change do you think we'll see there? Yeah, so th this was a, a worry of, of, of mine, of yours, of, of many of our colleagues. You know, when you start getting into a consultation about regulatory conditions, there's the danger that you make it harder for bidders and you have an actual market impact in the UK of deterring bidders. Um, and having read through the, the consultation, having participated, um, in the consultation uh, and the pre-consultation, having now gone through the response statement. Um, my thoughts are this should not deter bidders um, in the UK. And I don't think there's any basis to, to actually argue that, that it will have that impact. And why do I say that? Well, the, the question for most bidders in most cases is the majority of regulatory approvals are procedural, i.e. you know that you can achieve satisfaction, you've got to jump through some hoops um, and, and do certain things and you get your clearances within specified timeframes. Sometimes it takes a bit longer than you might ideally hope um, and there's some, I, I'm sure, some time and cost that bidders would rather not spend, but it's all perfectly manageable. There's then the smaller minority case where there is a substantive regulatory issue that needs to be addressed. And it's a tough call for in this small category, whether you're going to get the clearance or not. And I think if you weigh all these changes up together, if you're a bidder that thinks you've got a good shot in this difficult category of getting a clearance, um, then there's no reason to not make the bid just because of these changes to the code. Um, it might be a tough call and that tough call might go either way, uh, but you can still satisfy your 2.7 obligations. You can still protect yourself with an appropriate condition and you can still get out there with a bid um, under these changes. 
and and I would say it's no different uh, than than currently exists. Uh, so th there's no reason to be alarmist about these changes, um, and there's no reason to be overly concerned. Um, each bidder with a truly substantive issue will need to take proper advice and think very carefully, uh, but that's what they were doing anyway before these changes came in. Thanks, Mark. Um, so I think that's enough detail for everyone to get to grips with today, possibly. Just to remind our listeners, the changes will come into force on the 5th of July and will apply to all firm offers announced after that date. So that's 2.7 after the 5th of July. If your firm offer is announced prior to that date, you're under the old rules still. And the same goes if you announce a firm offer post 5th of July, but if it's in competition with an offer announced prior to that date. And that's just to ensure that where you've got a competitive situation, both bids are running to the same rules and timetable. Um, thank you, Mark, for joining me today. And thank you to you, our listeners. Uh, we'd welcome any feedback or thoughts you have on our po podcast and any areas you'd like to see discussed in future episodes. Otherwise, we look forward to you joining us on our next one. Thank you. Thanks, Antonia, and thanks all for listening.